This week's podcast from our Battle of Ideas archive is called Ukraine, Cold War Rebooted, and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2014. The chair is Bruno Waterfield. This debate, Ukraine, Cold War Rebooted, is a debate that I personally have been really looking forward to the most uh, this weekend. I work in Brussels. I've been writing about Ukraine quite a lot. I've been writing about this current crisis a hell of a lot, actually. It's something that people talk about a lot in Brussels. They're talking about it in all the foreign ministries, in all the capitals in Europe. It's widely seen as being at least the most serious foreign policy challenge, certainly for European countries um, since the former uh, Yugoslavia. So it's, it's seen as a significant moment on the, in the sense that it will redefine um, European policy in its neighbourhood, redefine relationships between Europe and Russia and Russia and Europe, Russia and the world um, and the world and Russia. It's a lot of claims are already being made for it. People are talking about um, a new Cold War. NATO, rather conveniently, as Afghanistan ends, has discovered a new uh, sense of mission there. People are talking um, about a Cold War. It's seen as a very, very significant and dangerous moment, and indeed it does seem to be a dangerous moment when we look at what happened um, with the Malaysian Airlines flight MH17. Um, so it's an important moment, but yet we've seen that there are quite high levels of mistrust, sometimes between um, European powers. Unity has been maintained in Europe, but there's some debate about how united uh, Europe actually is and the content of um, that um, united approach. It's raised the whole debate about geopolitics and realist um, foreign policy as opposed to sort of idealism and principles and uh, ideas of self-determination. So it's a really, really fundamental debate. It's a debate that really is going to be about how uh, Europe uh, understands uh, Russia and how it relates to Russia, how it relates to its neighbourhood. I'm going to introduce our excellent panel in the order um, in which uh, they're going to speak. First of all, We'll hear from Tara McCormack. She lectures uh, on international politics at the University of Leicester. Uh, Tara is the author of Critique, uh, Security and Power, which was published in 2009, which is a good read. I recommend it. After Tara, we'll hear from Will Vernon, who's a producer at BBC uh, News. Um, he's been reporting from Ukraine. He's been reporting from Ukraine a lot. So he's going to give us a real impression of what is going on, how Ukrainians see it and what is actually happening on the ground. He's speaking in a, a personal capacity because BBC uh, journalists aren't allowed uh, to have opinions. No. Um, but I think we'll hear, I think, I, I think it's going to be uh, very, very interesting. His reports have been uh, very illuminating. Um, then after uh, Will, we'll have uh, Ivan Krastev, who's a Bulgarian. He's one of uh, Eastern Europe's most um, interesting uh, thinkers. He's a regular here at the Battle of Ideas. He was speaking earlier on uh, today. He's the uh, chair of the uh, Centre of Liberal Studies. He's had a book out this spring uh, called uh, Democracy Disrupted the Global Politics on Protest. Speaking last in order will be Katerina Wolchuk. She's a reader in politics and international studies at the Centre for Russian, European and Eurasian uh, Studies at the University of Birmingham. Uh, so she's an expert on relationships between the European Union, Europe, and post-Soviet Eurasian uh, states. So her expertise 
is going to be uh, very useful, but we're beginning with Tara. Tara. First, is this the new Cold War? No, not yet, but do be warned that many Western policymakers were very, very excited to uh, see what happened in the Ukraine, and you could hear positive sighs of relief at the recent NATO conference. Finally, a clear enemy. Two, who caused the crisis? My argument is that America and the EU caused the crisis. The EU bears primary responsibility, and America then exacerbated the problem. I'm not arguing that Putin is a saint. The point is, how do we understand the start of the crisis? My third point, which I guess is the main substantive point, is that this is a clear example of what I think is a very, very dangerous trend of what I'm going to call accidental foreign policy. I'm going to focus on the EU, but I'm happy to talk about American policy later. And I think we can see this in two ways. First of all, the broader framework for EU foreign policy and the specific actions in the Ukraine. First of all, EU foreign policy um, has been framed of being, uh, of being what the academics call normative foreign policy, foreign policy that isn't driven by interests, material interests, strategic interests, etc., but by the desire to enhance people's rights, law, democracy. Now, this is the framework for all EU policy, aspects of EU foreign policy, trade agreements, relationship agreements with neighbours, etc. The EU sets conditions, but conditions that stipulate that a country must, for example, alter its justice system or the way the police work. Now, the real problem is that this form of policy is explicitly understood to be post-political, non-interventionary, one which simply facilitates or provides a positive framework for states. There's no imagined impact here, apart from a completely benevolent one. But the problem is that in all existing states, there are real political material interests and disagreements. And EU foreign policy explicitly refuses to recognise this. And I think this is very problematic. There is an absolute rejection or refusal to understand that Policies dictated by a powerful external force can have a real material political impact in a state. And the EU also seems to willfully ignore external political realities. Again, imagining a fiction that its policies can only be seen uh, as a kind of benevolent, facilitating framework. And in the context of the Ukraine, you have the post-Cold War agreement between the West and Russia... And whereas Russia is frequently told, Russia is portrayed as uh, tearing up the post-Cold War order, it's really uh, the EU that has kind of trampled over the uh, agreement that Ukraine would remain outside of NATO and the EU. John Mearsheimer, the American realist who's written very well on, these, on this uh, crisis, has called it Geopolitics 101. You know, you, you don't have to be a kind of genius to work out this is a Problem. And finally, I want to talk about the specific things the EU has done in terms of this accidental foreign policy. I think we've had um, an extraordinary, and I would actually argue scandalous, decision by three EU foreign ministers who essentially took it upon themselves to travel to Ukraine and depose the existing government. Um, I don't think it's going too far to call this a coup, in my opinion. Now, I don't know if it, again, was naivety or a willful refusal to consider that deposing the sitting government actually may have some kind of quite serious political impact within a state. 
So I guess the point that I want to conclude on is that one of the really worrying things at the moment is that EU foreign policy seems to be being conducted almost in some kind of fantasy world that has no very little relationship or engagement with uh, real political conditions. Okay. Well, Tara has set the uh, <laughs> standard for the speed speaking. Thank you very much. Uh, Will. Thanks. My analysis of the Ukraine situation is basically based on what I've seen and, and the reporting in which I've been involved in Ukraine. So I've been producing news coverage from Ukraine since 2012, when I first travelled there for the Euros, for the football. And at that time, Ukraine, if you take a city in Ukraine like Donetsk, at that time Donetsk was a very happy, affluent, confident city full of Ukrainian flags and people having a lovely time. Uh, with a brand new airport, open the great fanfare, new hotels, new stadium. There was very little hint of any divisions uh, or tensions. And if you sort of fast forward uh, to last month, my last trip to Donetsk, it was a city under bombardment, deserted, basically just a few pensioners left, boarded up shops, people, you know, the city centre being bombed, people being killed every day, uh, and the airport had collapsed. And at the same time, in Kiev, there was a sort of increasingly fractious government that seemed to be dominated by nationalists. So we have to ask how this happened. So I'm going to start by explaining what, how I see the crisis. So it, it's three stages for me. It's, it's the Maidan, and then the annexation of Crimea, uh, and finally the conflict in Donbass. And the big question is, is this more of a, a local uh, issue, uh, or is it part of a sort of wider east-west struggle as in, is this a, a proxy war, uh, a fight between the EU and the West on one hand and a resurgent Russia on the other, or is it a local conflict? Uh, and was the, the Maidan actually uh, a culmination of an unfinished revolution in 2003, the Orange Revolution, and, and sort of the final result of decades of internal divisions? So as ever, the answer, um, based on what I've seen and experienced, is a bit of both. So uh, in terms of things that suggest the Ukraine crisis is uh, a, lo a local issue, when I visited in uh, 2013, the first visit, the, the program we did was on an internally divided Ukraine. So on the one hand, you've got an, an ethnically and linguistically Russian uh, East, and on the other, a sort of European-leaning Ukrainian-speaking West. And so the industrial Russian-speaking East was repopulated by ethnic Russians by Stalin following the famine in the 1930s as opposed to the European-leaning East, which was, until the Second World War, part of Poland. So there were clear divisions. During the Maidan movement, the East of the country was constantly overlooked. None, none of the protest leaders tried to reach out to the East, even though they knew that it was where President Yanukovych, the ousted president, and, and his party enjoyed the most support. And when the new parliament sat for the first time, they actually introduced, uh, but didn't pass, a bill to remove Russian as a regional language. And this was incredibly, you know, divisive uh, and really made Eastern Ukrainians incredibly angry. And, by, you know, they didn't reach out to ethnic Russians, to Crimeans, to Eastern U Ukrainians. And people in the East felt as though they're treated as second-class citizens. And this is something that constantly came up in, in conversations that we had with people as we traveled around Ukraine throughout the crisis. Uh, and local grievances did crop up quite often. And, and the language issue was a, a real concern for people that they felt that Russian speakers were not, you know, accepted by the rest of Ukraine. And in addition, despite repeated accusations by the Ukrainian authorities that the uprising in eastern Ukraine was Russian troops, 
from what I saw, the vast majority of, of fighters, of supporters, activists were locals. They were Ukrainian citizens, ethnic Russians, a lot of them, but still Ukrainian passport holders. So if we look at the sort of larger scale proxy war issue, how can we characterize it in this way? Of course, there are certain factors that point to this being a, you know, a new Cold War, pro-Ukrainian, West Ukraine, pro-Russian, Eastern Ukraine supported by Russia and the EU. And Russia has shown by its actions that it's clearly concerned about having a pro-Western potential NATO member right on its border. And Russia is supporting the movement in Eastern Ukraine. Several senior rebels told me in private conversations that, yes, Russia's helping um, weapons, arm, uh, arms, money. They didn't quite go as far as admitting that there were regular Russian soldiers in eastern Ukraine, although, of course, we know there are and were. So Russia certainly has had a part to play in this crisis from the very beginning. We know that President Yanukovych constantly called Putin throughout the Maidan crisis. We know Russian troops annexed Crimea. Um, and Russian state-controlled media, which is essentially propaganda, uh, has reached sort of fever pitch in its, in its attacks on Ukraine. So Russia's actions in Ukraine and its so-called near abroad since the rise of Putin are due to a number of reasons, which I'm sure we'll go into um, in the discussion. It, similarly, the EU and the West uh, had a role in this from very early on. Kathy Ashton visiting the Maidan, Victoria Newland discussing who the next president of Ukraine could be. So that's Western involvement. But then again, the, the premise of EU involvement or influence in the Ukrainian crisis is a tricky one, I think, because in terms of my experiences, the EU has very little significance to most people in Ukraine. I mean, they don't, they don't cite it uh, in conversations. And closer integration in, in, into the EU, they just don't feature in political discourse. So the Maidan did start as a protest movement um, when Yanukovych didn't sign the association agreement with the EU. But they actually started to die down in December. And it was actually in January uh, when the police very violently, violently broke up a student demonstration that they were reignited. And when they were reignited, it changed from this protest movement against the refusal to sign the agreement with the EU into an anti-government movement. Uh, and, you know, there were all sorts of concerns that people had, corruption, bad roads, a whole range of grievances that people cited during the protest that the EU just basically disappeared from the whole discussion. I'd better stop there. Thank you very much. I'm in a certain way in a privileged position because you two two different views. One is that everything should be explained by the politics of European Union or Russia. You can go one day. The other, there is also local politics. And before making my three points, I just want to say that it was not that the Ukrainians were facing a question to be part of the EU or not. The story was that there were two different integration projects going there, and what was destroyed was the geopolitical ambiguity in which Ukraine had been basically living after the end of the Cold War. Ukraine should have either joined the goal closer to the European Union or joined the Eurasian Union. So from this point of view, what was not given to Ukraine is staying in between. And this was coming from the European Union, but also from Russia. Basically, the pressure on Ukraine coming from President Putin was not that they should not join European Union. The pressure was that they should join Eurasian Union. I'm saying this because if you, in January you're going to talk about European politicians and what they expect, that there were two things that they believe that are not going to happen. They believe that first, Russia is not going to allow Western control over Crimea. This was obviously for everybody who was following this. And secondly, they were sure that Russia is not going to annex Crimea. And it was the second one that turned to be wrong. So it was not the fact that Russia kept control over Crimea. It was the annexation 
that came as a big surprise. And it came as a big surprise because before it, Russia was very resentful, but Russia was always very much trying to play the legality of the international order, very much attacking the West for this, uh, for being going illegally. Secondly, this was kind of the end of the Europe's hope that economic interdependence makes war impossible that the more we're economically interdependent, basically the more conflict is over. I'm saying this because there are two points which I want to make. One is to try to understand why Russia, basically European Union was so surprised by Russia did, and also why after that Russia was very much surprised by the European uh, reaction. European Union was surprised for three, in my view, very simple reasons. First, European Union tried to believe, and we managed to convince ourselves, that everything that is happening after the Cold War was a win-win game. Everything is, there is no losers. But listen, from the Russian point of view, it was not such a big win. And there was very few people that have been nostalgic for Soviet communism, but there were many people that have been basically nostalgic for Soviet Union as a big power being respected, which has nothing to do with communism. So from this point of view, psychologically, when you go and tell to some people that they feel that they're losers, that they're living in a non-loser world, these people are not basically very much charmed by your message. The second one is that uh, European uh, leaders managed to convince themselves that Russia basically do not fear really the West. It's much more talk, and Russia much more fears China and basically the radical Islam uh, on the southern part. So from this point of view, when the Russians are basically complaining, position of the European Union was it's a talk. They know that we are not a problem because they know that we are reasonable and vegetarian power. And from this point of view, we cannot be a threat for anybody. And this was very strong on the level of uh, the European elites. What they didn't manage to recognize was that in a certain way, Russia was not so much scared about its territorial integrity, but much more about uh, the political sustainability of the regime and basically how it can be undermined. And thirdly, because the Europeans were seeing all these Russian elites coming, talking money, spending money, and so on and so on, they were absolutely sure that these elites are not going to do anything that is going to hurt their own business interests. This was also a wrong estimation of the situation because these elites, as corrupt as they are, they have been also very much dreaming about a different Russia's role in the world. I do believe that the interesting story was that, in my view at least, Russian behavior should be better understood in the terms of the Russian domestic politics and basically also how Putin read what happened during the Russia winter protest of 2012. One of the things that is very difficult for the Western analysts to believe, but at least of everybody I have been talking to on the Russian side, it's true. Mr. Putin is strongly convinced that any type of a protest that you're going to see in the world is organized by somebody's intelligence. This is a very strong police vision of history. He does not believe that things can happen spontaneously. It's true for Moscow, it's true for Kiev, it's true for Hong Kong. So for him, this was a covert operations, very much going after regime change. And to be honest, the fact that the Western politicians jumped and said, oh, we contributed very much to this, probably helps him to believe this. Uh, so this impossibility to believe in the genuine nature of any political protest also explains part of his behavior. But he made two also major miscalculations in his reaction. And his biggest miscalculation was Germany. Uh, I do believe that the idea that Germany is going to support Russia over this was based on the fact that he didn't understand that for the European Union, for Germany, uh, on the leading position in the EU, 
what was the Ukrainian crisis was very much about European Union. If Germany is going to allow countries like Poland or the Baltic states to feel totally isolated and left on their own, this was the end of the European project. So the tougher position of European Union was very much the result, not of the American toughness, but of the decision of Chancellor Merkel and the position of Germany. It was Germany who did it. And from this point of view, I do believe, and this is the last point that I want to make, that this was the miscalculation of the Russian position. I do believe that, of course, we are living in a different world, and this conflict is a conflict that is going to tell us something about the future. Because in the future, we're going to see more and more type of a political protest which you don't know from where they're coming, and you don't know where you're going. On one way, European Union being a normative power is very much in the idea to endorse all this. European media is very much endorsing this. On the other, Russians basically want the world in which this type of a protest are going to be bent and disappeared. And this world cannot happen because especially with this type of a new technologies and basically the cultural changes that happened, this world cannot happen anymore. So from this point of view, it's not a Cold War. It's a totally different situation because now this is the instability within the states and not the competition between the states that explains this instability. I'm not sure if the microphone is on. I am Normally, the British people start with, yes, but. I'll be very French and say, no, but. So it's not the Cold World reboot, but I would like just to present to the, or continue the story of Ukraine being caught in the crossfire of integration. And what uh, Ivan said about being sort of two integration projects going on in the post-Soviet space, but I would also, I'm far from, I've just come back from Moldova, where it's not Nigel Farage, but it's actually poor sort of EU technocrats in Moldova who made me very Eurosceptic. But here, I'm back in London, and I'll actually say that the EU is very much taken by surprise, and it's hardly to blame for something which Ukraine demanded from it, either new contractual framework, the new agreement. Every single president of Ukraine wanted closer integration with the EU up to the membership perspective. They started knocking on the door of the EU in 1998. It was President Kuchma who started and continued by President Yushchenko and then President Yanukovych went as far as stopping the negotiations on the association agreement and asking for the membership perspective to be put in the association agreement. Needless to say, the EU refused being very fatigued of enlargement, and especially not wanting to have this sort of messy and badly governed country like Ukraine with a you know, really sort of fledging autocrat in charge of it, um, sort of becoming, sort of joining the waiting room uh, for EU enlargement. So the EU was very much taken by surprise, almost sort of like, sort of, but it was also very passive. If you ask anybody who was on the Maidan, they would think the EU did very little. And U.S. officials actually put it in very sort of <clears throat> verbal or vocal, vocal way. But as Will also said, it started as the Euromaidan. It became the Maidan. In Ukraine now, people talk about the Maidan, the right to rebel against an increasingly oppressive um, authorities. So we have the right to rebel versus the very statist approach to which Ivan alluded, positivist approach that any formal laws, regardless to what extent they respect human rights, are good enough and they legitimize whatever actions the government wants to take. 
And in Ukraine, it was the, the draconian laws of the 16th of January, which started the violent phase of the protest. And I was in September, uh, in Ukraine in September just before. And I have to make, I made sort of some sort of, I at least in my head, some disparaging thoughts about the Ukrainians. How passive they are, and how they're prepared to accept this sort of Central, U U Central Asian type of sort of um, sultanic regime which President Yanukovych built in Ukraine. 50% of public contracts went to his son's company in January of this year. This is basically how, how corrupt Ukraine became every single aspect of Ukraine, whether from the road police, corporate governance, and Amnesty International wrote a very damning report. Basically, you could leave a building, be arrested outside, and your business would be taken by someone close to the government. This is how bad things were in, in Ukraine. But many people discovered Ukraine as a result of the crisis, not just when the Maidan started. And the issue of the constitutional framework and what constitutes the coup d'etat is very important. According to the 1996 constitution of Ukraine, if the president is no president, if he flees the country, then the speaker of the parliament becomes the acting president. And the fact that the party of regions, the so-called the party of power of Ukraine, voted for that, the whole people, the, the members of parliament who have voted in parliament, voted for that solution for the speaker of the parliament to become the acting president, actually from the constitutional point of view, legitimizes the decision. So it hardly can be viewed the coup d'etat. At the same time, the presence of the three European leaders, the French, German and Polish, um, they were actually there in a fairly sort of moderate form. There's a very interesting exchange between them when the opposition, Ukrainian opposition leaders at the time were unhappy with the compromise decision allowing President Yanukovych to stay in power for another year when he had blood on his hands. Basically, Sikorsky, knowing how he's outspoken, the Polish foreign minister, knowing how he's outspoken, said, if you don't accept it, you'll be killed. It was as simple as that. So they were hardly sort of promoting the coup d'etat, but actually rather taken by surprise. You know, we, may, we have so many groaning, so much groaning, moaning about the EU inside sort of the EU that actually having people sort of killed on the streets of a neighboring country in the name of European values uh, was a bit of shock to um, all people in Europe. But the concept of this sort of post-war, some, somehow the Maidan and the change of government in Ukraine violated this post-Cold War settlement. <clears throat> and for me, you know, I come from Poland and part of Western Ukraine was historically Polish. But after the Vilnius summit, when President Yanukovych refused to sign the association agreement, Poland didn't go on to annex Western Ukraine. It was sort of uh, somehow now we talk about the spheres of influence. The new Monroe Doctrine now applies to the sort of Putin's doctrine. So it is a messy bipolar world. But it also, the issue boils down, do we accept sovereignty, sort of sovereignty of the countries and the right to determine their foreign policy and then we have to accept that President Yanuk even President Yanukovych at no point agreed to join the Russian integration project. And he st still sort of um, insisted on the European choice. Or do we actually um, accept that we have the spheres of influence in Europe? But ultimately, I think the discourse of blaming the EU, um, sort of EU technocrats who are blindfolded into this sort of whole geopolitical mess, I think legitimizes the policy of annexation and aggression in Europe. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Tara, I'd like to come to you um, first of all. I thought Katharina ended well to set, set up my question to you. Aren't you legitimising Putin's annexation? And, and can you spell out a bit more um, about why you fought um, the European uh, intervention amounted to a coup d'etat? Um, well, no, I guess I wouldn't really see that. I mean, I think it, it's obviously in these debates in which one is trying to make a strong point in a short time, it can often seem that one is... I'm not, I don't think it is being pro-Putin to try and understand the roots of the crisis. I mean, I just don't really understand that. It's, as I said, it's not to say that Putin is a great guy, but how do we understand who precipitated the crisis in the first place? And um, it just seems to me, when one just reads the accounts of what happened in the Ukraine, I mean, not in any kind of conspiratorial way, but this, you know, the media accounts, if three foreign ministers who essentially took it upon themselves you know, go to Kiev and more or less tell the sitting head of government, you know, you've got to clear off, and then warn the opposition that if they don't, sign up to it, they will be shot in the streets. Not by the EU, obviously, but, you know. Um, I cannot really characterise this in any other way than as a sort of soft coup. Well, I, want, I wanted to ask you, I was, I'm very intrigued by you saying you're in Donetsk when all was well, and then later on when um, the conflict had um, broken out. It'd be quite good... To, for you to tell us a little bit, because this is one of the striking features about the former Yugoslavia, where suddenly um, divisions and armed groups emerged, where before there had just been, you know, people living happily alongside each other. So it'd be just quite good if very quickly you can give us a flavour, and perhaps if you talk to people in Donetsk 1, and then the same people in Donetsk 2, about how they saw these divisions uh, as emerging. Mm, yeah, well, I mean... Obviously, the divisions between East and West are kind of well-documented and go back many, many years. Um, and, you know, if you look at the kind of opinion polls that uh, have been conducted in Ukraine uh, ever since independence, you know, it's clear that you've got these kind of very different opinions on each side. But actually, it's interesting because there's, there was sort of a, a split within a split um, in the East because what we often found was that in terms of um, support for the protest movement, and this was obviously a new protest movement against the new government in Ukraine, which had been a protest movement against the old government in Ukraine. So what you often found is you, you would have sort of the intellectuals, the business people, and the students and the football fans on the side of um, a, a united Ukraine. And then the other, on the other hand, you'd have the miners the working class, the pensioners, uh, the military and the police who were on the other side, on the more pro-Russian side. So there was actually, it wasn't, obviously it wasn't sort of all of the East love Russia and all of the West love Europe. You know, when you boil down to it, there's actually, it's actually a, a lot more complicated than that. Okay. One of the things I want to carry on exploring then is, is that you said, Ivan, that... that, that um, and you sort of bore it out, thought out a little bit as well, Katrina, but, but, but a lot of this was about um, instability within states, saying that it's you know, important that that, um, that instability in, in, within states can give rise to new, uh, new politics, reformist movements, uh, pro-European uh, movements, and it's important that those countries have the sovereignty 
um, to do that. You mentioned, Ivan, the sort of the geopolitical ambiguity for the Ukraine in 2008, when just after the Georgia crisis, there was discussion about um, Ukraine uh, joining NATO, um, etc. And the ambiguity meant that that decision was effectively uh, delayed almost permanently. So I'd like to say, ask you, Katarina, I mean, you, you, is it really just instability? within the Ukraine, when, when you have that reform movement which becomes very politicised by external powers. And obviously we sort of expect, in, in one sense, that it could become politicised um, uh, by Russia, because Russia's always made its position vis-à-vis um, -vis Ukraine um, very, very clear, but it did seem to become politicised by external elements. So is it really just instability within the Ukraine when you have very high-profile Western leaders, including Mr. Sikorsky, going and speaking to protesters um, on, uh, on the Maidan, and it begins to assume a slightly different character. So can we really look at the Maidan and say that was instability within a state um, and not instability in which other states then um, became involved, uh, giving it a new dynamic and, in, in one sense, fueling the paranoia of a very... Um, defensive uh, Putin. So can I ask you, Katarina, on that one? Right. Um, yeah, was it self-made or was it imported? And I think it's paradoxical because the Orange Revolution, which was peaceful, very, you know, nice colours, you know, it was like a long-lasting rock concert in comparison to the Maidan, it was actually imported. There was training provided by EU embassies in Ukraine and was mainly Serbian and Georgian activists training Ukrainian activists in peaceful protest techniques. And sort of the Orange Revolution was peaceful because it, the authorities basically recognized people's powers at the time and they were not prepared to escalate to resort to violence. Um, thanks to interventions from both sides, actually, from the EU and Russia, the Maidan was different. But it can be traced to a single, basically, Facebook post by the uh, Ukrainian journalist of Afghan origin, um, Mustafa Nayem, who basically uh, called people to protest about Yanukovych abandoning the association agreement. And the people on, on the Maidan, it, they said to me when I interviewed people actually um, about it, they say it was like a university reunion. 60% of people on the Maidan had higher education degree. It was like meeting your sort of university mates. And it was, when we look at public opinion surveys throughout, it was basically broadly pro-European part of society tended to be younger and better educated. Um, the exception was Western Ukraine, where all stratas of society. So paradoxically, it was, you know, talking in Britain about the class system, it was sort of this sort of... Um, a sort of vague class system which emerged in Ukraine and the aspirations, as one Hong Kong protester said, and I really like that he captured it, it sounds stupid, but it's all about democracy and human rights. And for us, fighting our sort of little European intra-EU battles, this perhaps, you know, we're a bit complacent, but the people who you, in Ukraine who are worse off, this is actually what it um, boiled down to. So the Maidan was much more, and I'm afraid the presence of the, you know, whether American and European leaders, you know, all the sort of exes came to, uh, went to the Maidan, they didn't change because there were, for example, nothing was done in terms of sanctions. The people in Ukraine who were in favor of the Maidan of reforms, they wanted sanctions. No sanctions were imposed until the, um, basically the, the Maidan was over. It only really sort of took off with the annexation of Crimea. So, so the Maidan, I am really sort of the intervention of the West. It was about de-escalation 
rather than escalation. And what is most interesting that the bargain stuck by the, between Yanukovych and the EU leaders was basically dismissed by the Maidan itself as insufficient, allowing someone with his basically hands um, in blood staying for another year in power. Okay. Can I just say something quickly? Yeah. Um, you know, all, all, all this talk about foreign ministers going to, um, going to Kiev, EU foreign ministers, and uh, the, you know, the accusations that um, Victoria Newland was discussing who should take you know, the, the, the presidency in a, a new Ukraine. Actually, these people, they didn't, they didn't make the Maidan. The opposition leaders, um, you know, some of the senior figures that um, EU and US officials met with in Kiev, they didn't make the Maidan. The Maidan was made by all those people. The, the government that was formed, the new government, as a result of the Maidan movement, actually, I think there was an opinion poll last week that said that 70% of people approve of the actions that are taken, taken by the government so far. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a kind of top-down thing, I don't think. Certainly from what I saw, and I've got to keep saying that, <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't a top-down thing. It was actually, that's, the whole, that's what the Maidan was. It was a mass grassroots movement. Okay, but I don't think, I, don't, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to challenge the idea that, that there wasn't a, a mass a grassroots uh, a movement. And one of the problems of geopolitical ambiguity and everyone wanting to dance around issues in Ukraine, as I said, was discussed back in, in 2008, very substantially in, in the European Union without any really real great result, is that whilst you have this grassroots movement, the Maidan, and maybe, you know, these Europeans and these Americans who are going there have the best of motives. They've got this normative thing that, you know, de de democracy protests, anti-corruption protests are good and, and you want to support it, but you don't want it to become too polarised and all the rest of it. But you don't really know what you're doing. You've got this ambiguity. Um, you mistrust each other. And, and I, I, I like the way that you mentioned the Newland uh, phone call. This was a Newland phone call where she was... The taped on her presumably mobile phone, which shows very sloppy security for a diplomat um, by the, the Russians. They are very good at that. Yes, basically swearing about how useless, using the F word about the useless uh, Europeans. But so when, when people are getting involved or relating to a spontaneous grassroots movement, and they've got this chaotic, mistrustful um, levels um, themselves, surely then that lends it a different quality in an ambiguous situation where the Americans are coming in and shouting and ranting, um, where the Europeans are doing a bit of uh, theatre as well and the Europeans don't trust each other. It gives it a character which is external. It's not just merely an instability within a state. Would you agree with that? For sure. Listen, my only major point was it's going to be very naive to believe that either Russians or the West have been controlling the situation on the ground. Both sides have been playing around and trying to create, by the way, the image of being more important than they are. Because part of the story was that there was for one month in which nobody was controlling the situation in Ukraine. Is there external factor? Yes, on three levels. First, the very existence of the Ukraine in the way it was, dysfunctional, corrupt government, which everybody is ready to talk with, was based on a certain understanding of the European order, where basically Russia was not perceiving the European Union as a major threat. This was there. When you have two projects going on, when basically also Russia decided to have an integration project of its own, 
this was not possible anymore. From this point of view, it's not very different than Yugoslavia in 1991. During the Cold War, both sides have an interest for Yugoslavia to survive. After the end of the Cold War, nobody was interested in this. The same happened to Ukraine. This ambiguity was part of the post-Cold War European order, and this post-Cold War European order was very much eroded. To believe that what's happening there was simply because European politicians did do or that, or the Russians were controlling totally Yanukovych and telling him, kill this one or that one, I do believe it's a simplification which works well on the propaganda level, but it's not true. First, European ministers went to Ukraine because the newspapers and the televisions were covering this enormously, and they wanted much more to impress their own publics. In countries like Poland, where this is a real public issue, Mr. Sikorsky went there because he cannot stay there because the opposition is going to tell him why you are not in Kiev. In the Russian side, very much dissimilar. To be honest, I do believe that Mr. Putin was really afraid that after losing Ukraine, he's going to see a street, but this street is not going to be the liberal Moscow street, but it's going to be the Russian nationalists who are not going to basically forgive him for losing Ukraine. And in October 2013, you have the highest level of anti-xenophobic uh, sentiments being registered in Russia according to the Levada Center. So everybody has a problem of its own. Uh, and from this point of view, Ukraine is also very interesting because people say stabilizing, destabilizing, it's very difficult to destabilize this functional state. Um, yeah, I, I really don't want to imply at all that I'm suggesting that the EU kind of created the uh, genuine political disagreements in Ukraine. Quite the opposite. That's my point. The EU, of course, didn't make the protests in the Maidan. The, the point is, as Will said and Katerina also in her work, you, know, you have a country which is very weak and which, in which there are genuine political disagreements you know, between East and West, and obviously that is oversimplifying it too. I accept that. But the, that's exactly the point. When you have this kind of very almost sort of accidental um, sort of meddling and intervention with no clear idea even of uh, what the end point is, it is inevitably going to absolutely exacerbate the, the situation. And I just want to say a thought experiment. The question of, you know, intervention, is it a coup, etc. Is it a coup? Okay, imagine if at the height of Occupy London, you know, Putin, the Chinese foreign minister, and let's say the Belarusian foreign minister for good measure, you know, went to St. Paul's and started uh, going on about how illegitimate the, you know, the coalition government was, or if there'd been any overt uh, intervention in terms of the Scottish referendum. Now, I think that most states would react quite strongly to this, which isn't to justify anything, but it's just an obvious political point. And yet, when it comes to countries within e in Eastern Europe, and it was exactly the same in Yugoslavia, that the Yugoslavs were treated as, you know, of course, what could they, how could they care what country they possibly lived in? It's almost like we project, we imagine that kind of people living in the Ukraine or Yugoslavia are almost like pawns to be pushed They can't possibly be bothered, you know, whether, what the name of the country is, what association they live in. Um, but what I think the real important point is, sorry, Bruno, is that point about the kind of confusing, chaotic, and accidental nature of EU foreign policy in which there is absolutely no clear acceptance or understanding that when you intervene in a country, you set off a chain of events. I mean, my three-and-a-half-year-old could work that out. Thank you, Tara. Now, I want to come out, I want to come, um, out to the audience, because we've, we've heard a, a lot here on the panel. I'll start here, right at the front. 
Do you think the annexation of Crimea is good for Crimeans, and why? And John Mearsheimer has argued that EU expansion caused fear in Moscow and precipitated uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea, where uh, you've got the Russian, a key Russian naval base. If it's a new Cold War in the making, um, it doesn't appear to be um, one in, in the Cold War realist uh, geopolitical framework. Uh, would you like to comment uh, on the implications of a potential new Cold War, but without uh, the old... Uh, or the former uh, geopolitical framework. I just wanted to just know if the panel thought there was any difference in the way that the West discussed the Maidan protests and the way they discussed the later referendums which happened in the East. Because it struck me that while Maidan was celebrated as this kind of democratic moment, wonderful reinvigoration of democracy, the moment these uh, Easterns, scary people from Russia, start wanting to vote and having more autonomy... Suddenly the whole thing, uh, well, the way we t- talked about it, it was all mobs, you know, mobs of people on the street demanding to vote. I just wondered if you saw a distinction there. Um, it seemed quite striking to me at the time, the demonization of Russia, for actually sort of what seemed to be a fairly straightforward response of a, of a nation state to a, you know, a nation on its border where it had key strategic interests being destabilized, a threat, it moved in, particularly co-opted a region that had been historically part of the country, and there were complexities there. That seemed fine. The EU, the, I think it seems to me the whole thing about the EU interaction was it, it wasn't very clear what its own interests were or what it was doing. Um, it, you know, it's not like the West is not involved in interventions historically, but it seemed very unclear about it. So what I want to know is, in terms of this being the, the shape of 21st century politics, whether there was any kind of distinction between the EU not really being a clear nation-state in terms of acting on its own interests and trying to act in a more general sense, which you think has led to that crisis of interest, or whether there's something else going on there. Um, I take the view that Tara took, and that's essentially that it was a meddling operation by the EU. And one of the great... Which simply ignored, as I think David here said, that countries have their vested interests, and Russia had an interest in Ukraine. In fact, the origin of Russia was Kiev, Rus. And, uh, and for us to sort of come in and muddle about it and try and influence it, I think, was awful. The other quick point is I think the EU intrinsically is a disaster because whatever happens, you've got 28 ministers who all get together. And in, a, in essence, that was Ivan's point. The Poles are sort of looking at their constituency. And so whatever happens, you suddenly get all these ministers coming along and each grandstanding to try and sound tougher than the rest and in terms of international politics, it's a disaster. Anyone on the panel who want, got a burning desire to come back on any of these points very quickly? I do want everybody. So no, 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 I don't want to do everybody. I want, if you're in the panel... I've, I've, I've got a couple of yeah. Yeah, Well, one of the things I'd like to ask you, because it just cause it seems to be a point related to some of the things you can say, and you can say whether this is what people sort of uh, felt on the ground. It does seem to be a certain uh, double standard in terms of the West saying, Madame, go for it, mm. you know democracy on the streets and all the rest of it, and then a, not a, a rather different standard applied in terms of sort of the Crimea. Is that a legitimate double standard? You mean the East? The East. Not, not really, because I think the difference between Maidan and the Eastern protest is, um, you know, the Maidan was non-violent, largely non-violent, uh, and the East, from the very beginning, these were armed men, you know, and there was, I mean, the, the whole reason that Ukraine launched its so-called anti-terrorist um, operation, which was the military operation to retake the East from the separatists, was when a local politician in Donetsk was found, uh, he was abducted and tortured and murdered. So, you know, there's a difference there in the, in the kind of methods that they used, but also I think the legality of it. 
Um, because, I mean, I agree with Katerina in terms of the legality of the overthrow of, uh, well, I shouldn't have used that word, considering my point, but the removal of Yanukovych, because he, he fled, he ran away. No one arrested him or, you know, he, he fled, and according to the Ukrainian constitution, the parliament then becomes the senior executive body. So, you know, I think that, you know, you could say that was a largely legal process, whereas the East clearly wasn't. I mean, you know, the very idea of holding a referendum in a region that, you know, is at war and having two weeks to prepare it without any sort of framework is mental, frankly. So um, I think, you know, in terms of the way, the methods, that differentiates the two. I have a sympathy with your argument that we believe that everything in Kiev is spontaneous and nothing in Donbass could be spontaneous. This is as idiotic as basically believing that everything in Kiev was organized by the West. Concerning the interest in the geopolitical reading, listen, it's very difficult to his interest. For sure, Russia has an interest in Ukraine. But how are you going to stop the Poles to believe that they have an interest in Lviv? If you start with this type of a dynamics, you're going to go with the fragmentation of any nation state. And from this point of view, I do believe he is the problem. And the last point was where I see the weakness of the European policy because it was symbolic politics. We were doing certain things simply because the Russians are telling us that we should not do that. And this is the problem, because this reactive symbolic politics makes non-strategic, not the intervention, because this is my last point. Listen, doing something, you start a chain of events. Not doing certain things, you also start a chain of events. That's an important point. We're going to take some more from the audience. Over here. Can I just say something very, very, very quickly? The point about... Um, you know, the EU going and meddling in, in an area that is Russia's property is, is what you, you seem to be saying. Ukraine is an independent nation. In 1991, 90% of Ukrainians voted to become an independent nation. And this whole thing about a post-Cold War consensus, you know, assuming there was some sort of agreement between Russia and the, and the West saying that there won't be any NATO expansion eastwards. I mean, there's no evidence that that ever took place. I mean, that was just... that The Russians have always said, oh, there was, a, there was an agreement between Gorbachev and Reagan or whoever it was to say, yeah, OK, disband the Soviet Union and we won't expand NATO eastwards. But... We, I mean, we don't know that. We're just taking the Russians' word no, on that, we, really. There were discussions in, in the late 1990s and 97 about whether there'd be a permanent NATO base in Poland, for example, mm. and, and, and the West and the, and backed the, away to yeah. the horror of the Poles, uh, who, who had a different understanding, uh, a brigade uh, at least. Um, let's come back to the audience. We're going to start with a little group of questions here. So go for it. Sure, thanks. Keep it you brief. Know, sure. Um, I think you can't really understand this without understanding going back in time in particular, one of the key developments had been um, what you might call the encirclement of Russia post-Cold War and the way in which NATO has expanded, as well as the, the West, into these territories. And um, I thought it was interesting that Kiss Henry Kissinger came out against um, what the West was doing, you know, from a more real, realpolitik point of view, and was saying that um, really the solution was Finlandization, really, re which... I would see as more sovereignty for, for the Ukraine. And I would say that even if the ministers never turned up or anything like that happened directly, the fact that the EU made an ultimatum posed that question very directly as outside interference and had to be seen in that, in that context. So the question I'd have is, is really, um, you know, to what extent does the panel think, if they accept some of my premises, why, why has the West adopted this approach? rather than the old-style geopolitics re you know, approach. 
Well, next year, keep it nice and brief, please. Like people always blame Israel for uh, everything, but if you look at the numbers, America's much bigger. Um, I don't think it's an insult to Ukraine to describe it as a basket case. And therefore, it seems very unlikely to me that its own internal divisions or the Ukraine itself was the, the substance of the problem. It seems to me, if you just look at the economics, the EU, and to a lesser extent Russia, must have been the dominating uh, power. And if you look at a particular expression of that, which is around gas which hasn't come up yet. Just wondered if the panel would care to come back on whether that was a dimension of it all, given Germany's obsession with energy policy, gas, and all the rest of it. Okay, uh, a couple of questions. I mean, I am of the opinion that some people on the platform are really underestimating the role of uh, the EU and especially Germany. I mean, Germany, the Konrad Adenauer Foundation built up financially and politically, educationally, one of the leading opposition politicians, namely the uh, boxer, whatever he's called. Um, a lot of very serious people, academics, are saying that there is no other option for Ukraine than to relate both to Europe and Russia. That's the only way to maintain stability in a country that's so in internally divided. And European policy should have realized that this is the case and that the kind of actions they took were really going to destroy the country. Don't you agree with that? Um, I'll try to make some three, sorry, oh, sorry. Stand up three points that I think will not very touch. I would like to thank Will for like, stressing the fact that Ukraine is a sovereign country because sometimes both the West and, of course, Russia forget about it. So, like, the Budapest memorandum proved basically Ukraine give away your nuclear weapon and the UK, the US and Russia will, you know, um, protect your borders. And then the annexation of Crimea occurred and the West just said it was a memorandum, not a treaty. So that would lead me to my second point, which I think we did not touch this issue about the ethical role that the West has had or has not had so far because... Um, you know, uh, we talk about European values, but at the same time, we have the uh, um, France is selling the mistrals and Rijanda being the weapons that are going to kill Ukrainian citizens. And, and another thing that nobody ever talks about is the particular history that Ukraine had. Basically, it never had a strong statehood. And in Europe, if you don't have a strong statehood, you're considered basically a second-class citizenship. And so... Your reflection, and just a super quick thing. It's a quote by an Italian Slavic who said that the destiny of Europe depends on the relationship between Germany and Russia, and the destiny of the world between depends on the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. What do you think about this? Taking into account today's weak U.S. Okay. leadership. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, my quick question is this. Maybe the EU was complicit in the Maidan, maybe it wasn't. Does it really matter? Um, isn't it actually, shouldn't it be the policy of the EU to be taking every measure necessary to contain Russian influence in the East? Thank you. It's a very informative discussion, but I wanted to pull away from, ask the panellists to pull away a bit from the Russia-West seesaw and think maybe a bit about a bigger picture. Uh, so what struck me was when Samantha Power, the US ambassador to the United Nations, stood up in the UN Security Council to condemn Russia for its aggression and interference in the sovereignty of another member state, how totally bankrupt and incredible 
it was for the US to be able to say that. So it seems to me what Katerina said was right. We live in an age in which states, large states, strong states are preying on weaker states, annexations and protectorates are back. But that began in Europe, in the Balkans, with NATO and the European Union. And the Russians have simply returned the message in the same form in which they received it. This conflict has uh, a lot of echoes of the beginning of 1914, except from the financial markets point of view, I would say that the war has already started. It's not being fought really with bullets, but it's been fought with oil and with finance. I'd be interested in your comments on that and the panel's view on if this effectively world war with finance and oil is being fought, how would the panel advise the various governments in order to step back from it? Okay, I'm going to bring a couple of people on the panel. I want to look at the, 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 this, this, uh, this idea of normative um, foreign policy um, living alongside, as, as, as Phil in the audience, uh, related to this sort of very interventionist West, where the West has been creating uh, protectorates and uh, uh, dismembering member states, uh, countries such as Serbia and Kosovo. Katerina, do you want to come back on any of these points? Right. I think the issue of infallibility of borders is very important. I come from Gdańsk in northern Poland. It was a German city. And I have shivers down my spine, basically, when we talk about borders. What about Strasbourg? What about Kaliningrad? We may not like what goes in neighboring states, but quite a different situation from actually taking over the, the territory of sovereign states, whatever historical titles we may have. And I think in Europe, this, given the, how recent many of the borders are, I think it really sets very unpleasant precedent. The issue of NATO, that was a non-issue in Ukraine. President Yanukovych opted for neutrality, basically putting on a shelf. People were largely against. What we have now, it had nothing to do with NATO, basically. But now the people of Ukraine are afraid, and the popula popularity of NATO is rising. And it's exactly what we don't, uh, in a way, didn't want. In Moldova, basically, n neutrality whatsoever. Russia is punishing U Moldova, the poorest country in Europe, in the same way that it is currently doing with, uh, with Ukraine. Um, the, final, the final point is about power of attraction. And I think asymmetry in the power of attraction. Imagine living between sort of a, a very powerful but messy, perhaps drunk, sorry to, for the stereotypical representation, neighbor, and a well sort of neatly Germanic style organized you know, neighbor, and you have to choose where do you go. And one is sort of rule abiding, another one is playing with rules. And this is the choice that Ukraine faced, very unpleasant, but in the end it had to make a choice. Okay. Tara, can you come back on? Um, yeah, just can on, you show your hands as well, people who still on, want to? On, on that point, I mean, just briefly, you know, you had to, I can't remember, was it the quote, the quote, you know, you had to laugh saying, a country in the 21st century can't go around annexing other countries and establishing protectorates, etc. Slightly ironic, but absolutely, Putin talking about human rights and sovereignty as an excuse for the annexation, and I I absolutely in no way think that the annexation has been good for Crimea or Russia or the EU. I think it's been a disaster all round. But Putin's absolutely reading from the Western script written in the responsibility to protect. You know, we will go in in order to restore sovereignty to uh, protect human rights. Absolutely. Um, but just in terms of this, I just want to go back to what Evan is saying because it, it is related about this idea of symbolic politics and to go back to what Vanessa um, asked about new cold war without geopolitics i think this is what you end up you have a cold you have a sort of it's not a cold war but a kind of conflict based on symbolic politics with no relationship 
to real politics on the ground and with no sense really of limits, I guess. And that was the one thing about the Cold War, not that I yearn for the good old days of mutually assured destruction, but there was a genuine sense of danger and of limits. And once politics goes off into the kind of ethical, normative, symbolic realm, there is no, literally no understanding or even conception of where these things might end. And just finally, even I know you say, of course, not doing something has consequences too, but not if had the EU, my argument would be, had the EU not acted as it had done in the Ukraine, you may well have had a pretty messy situation in Ukraine, but you would not have had an international crisis. That would be my Okay, you're going to wait because you're going to be able to come back. We haven't got a couple more speakers. Just there. Fascinated that we're digging around so much uh, about the situation in Ukraine, and no one on the panel actually elaborated a little bit on the Russian foreign policy of the last few decades, where in reality, Ukrainian crisis today and the situation we have between Ukraine and Russia could have been prevented has Europe and maybe the rest of the world done something when Georgian war was happening, which is exactly one-to-one -one scenario that is happening in Ukraine right now. Yeah, I'd just like to make three uh, succinct points. Succinct, yeah. Yeah. Firstly, people talk about the Ukrainian revolution as coming from below when it seems to me it was politically, intellectually and financially sponsored by Europe. People talk about the Russians giving money and arms to the Eastern separatists, but who gives all the money and arms to the Ukrainian government? And slightly off at a tangent, does anyone still believe that NATO and the UN are worth a wank? Okay, thank you for that last word. Uh, NATO and the UN were a wank. Um, right, um, what I'd quite like to do is start to move to wrap this up. Oh, we've got one, come on, speaker right at the back. Um, just in terms of sort of Ukraine and the Cold War, uh, I just want to know, we've discussed like the causes and the EU's um, and Russia's uh, interest in it, but what do you think, will it get, how will it get worse? Or how can it be contained? So I just wanted your opinion on how, how the crisis will progress. I'm surprised we did not talk about the relationship between Putin and the far-wing parties in the EU, which is a huge problem. Okay, the souverainist and, and the love affair with Putin. Right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask people to, to sum up. Um, I'm going to do it in the reverse order um, and really think about some of the things that have come up um, it's your last moment to sort of look at the audience in the eye um, and to distill, um, to distill it um, for them, to, to uh, win them, um, so to speak. So we're going to start um, in reverse order. So, Katarina. What is interesting, NATO given the new sense of purpose when it was lacking until the spring of this year. But what is paradoxical, the, what we had is the limited war. It was not the total war when sort of the countries came with their full power. Till today, Russia denies any kind of involvement. Those people in Russia who point to involvement are labeled foreign agents. Russia is very painfully avoiding being implicated officially, which actually gives reasons for hope because it means that Russia doesn't want to go into total war, and, um, but it wants to be taken seriously. And someone said about a decade ago, that the difference between Ukraine and Russia is that Ukraine wants to be included in the West, despite all the domestic divisions, whereas Russia wants to be on a par with the West. And this is sort of where the tensions came over the association agreement. But the limited war with the threat, with the troops, in, Russian troops at the Ukrainian border in the background, 
I think it's actually quite comforting, however perverse, perverse it may sound, because it means there was actually sort of limited limited investment of resources with a massive sort of propaganda machine, but the, not to have a war as such. Having said that, NATO has basically, you know, NATO commanders, and I take the point from Ivan about, it's the crisis in a particular country in Europe, but all the actors involved upload the agenda. And NATO sort of um, command, commanders basically now having this sort of license to spend for the wrong reasons. You know, how the ordinary sort of troops, ground troops, are going to fight in such a limited war. NATO is not prepared and doesn't seem to be sort of um, prepared for the kind of sort of postmodern sort of threats that um, Europe may face. And the final issue, the Georgian crisis, was it a wake-up call? I think Georgia has made it, you know, we had this discussion about Ukraine, there was massive discussion about Georgia 2008, and the fact that it was Saakashvili first who ordered shelling of the territories, I think made it very difficult. And the crisis, the context is always very sort of context-specific. How do we perceive what happens? And the Caucasus is very far away in comparison to Ukraine. Thanks very much. Um, Ivan, if you could come in. But I was very intrigued with something you said, though, which which sort of rang true for me when you, when you said that, that people were... Um, with Ukraine uh, guilty of doing things just because uh, Russia doesn't like it. Could you, if you could spell yeah, that out, yeah, I think yeah. that sounds I'll interesting. Speak, let's do it. There was one, in my view, paradox with the post-Cold War European order, which we should basically articulate clearly in order to know where it comes from. Post-Cold War European order was a deal not between Russia and the West, but between the Soviet Union and the West. And Soviet Union, unlike Russia, was getting the idea of the soft sovereignty much more positively, because for them, this was the way to keep the country together. Mr. Gorbachev liked the anti-nationalistic rhetoric of the European Union, because for him, this was the way to fight the nationalists within the Soviet Union. It didn't work. And in my view, this is very, very important, because from this point of view, Russia has a different type of an identity structure, different type of objectives than the Soviet Union. It's a different player. Uh, secondly, and for me, this is also important. When you're making a state, there is economy, there is this and that, but it's also the nationalistic sentiment. Nobody has made a state out of certain mobilization of the nationalistic sentiment. The paradox of the post-Soviet space is that much of the trade relations and cultural connections are based on the relations to Moscow, but the nationalism in the post-Soviet space is anti-Russian. This is not something. For Ukraine, it's much more painful because of the nature of the relationship, but this is what we saw in Kiev. It's not pro-European. It was much more anti-Russian, honestly speaking. I have been on the street after a certain point. And this makes the situation kind of much more. This is simply a classical nationalistic, uh, and I'm not saying it negatively. This is true for any of the countries. This is how you're making nations. And then on the US, EU, Russia, there is one major difference. United States basically does not have major economic relations with Russia. So for the United States to be tough on Russia does not have economic cost. From this point of view, it's very different than China. And in a certain way, honestly speaking, also because of the Israeli issue, it's much easier to be tough on Russia than on Iran. So from the domestic point of view, this is a kind of a much easier political game. And now I go for the last point, and this is basically how you're ending and to where you. Listen, there is a nice saying of the American politician from the 1990s when people talk Cold War and everybody was talking about bears, Russia is a bear. He said, when you're dancing with a bear, you're not quitting when you're tired. 
you quit when the bear is tired. Uh, I'm saying this because I do believe one thing that European Union should do at the moment is to recognize the Eurasian Union as a legitimate project on the Russian side. Ukraine is not going to be part of this project. But Russia has the right of project of its own. Part of the arrogance on the European side was that we believed that there is only one project possible. We believe that we are universalistic at everything which we're doing. Now, we simply discover that we're exceptional. On the other side, we're in very much in our right to defend what we have. And it's also not up to Mr. Putin, basically, to make a deal with the parties within the European Union in the same way he's unhappy people doing doing his own domestic politics. Okay, thank you very much. Um, uh, Will, um, if you come back, one of the things that Ivan has just said, which I heard repeated a lot by uh, journalists who'd um, been there and, and by some of the officials and diplomats involved, was that the Maidan protests were less pro-European than anti Russian, is that something you picked up at all? And any comments you want to, to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I must say, when covering the Maidan protest, there was very little anti-Russian sentiment there. Um, I mean, people did mention it sometimes that, you know, maybe we want a closer relationship with Europe than our traditional, you know, sort of mother country. But the anti-Russian sentiment that is now mainstream political discourse in Kiev only started, quite understandably, after Russia invaded them. So um, just on the, actually, on, the, um, on the point that Ivan was making about the um, Eurasian Union versus the European Union, for me, what's quite interesting and maybe makes it quite tricky to compare them is that um, with the Eurasian Union, you know, Russia is trying to force or coerce states into joining, whereas the European Union, you could argue, you know, probably tries to attract states more. I, I, guess, I guess the Eurasian Union is the sort of hard power uh, block, and the EU is more of the soft power block. Um, and actually, I, it was also interesting what Phil was saying about Kosovo. And Kosovo is actually something that crept up again and again and again. You know, pro-Russians and Russians alike would cite it as one of, the, one of their sort of main bugbears. Kosovo, for a lot of people, was the, was the moment when they really lost faith in, in the Western system. It was also Putin's justification for Georgia. Yes. As well. Yes. Kosovo was just a massive slap in the face to the Russians. Yeah, I agree with Katerina about Georgia not really being the same. Although it was a kind of seminal moment in the East-West relations, um, yeah, Saakashvili did, in, did launch the first shots. And, you know, we have subsequently seen that he, Saakashvili actually was not a Democrat. And I think he's quite mad, I think it's safe to say. But, I mean, I'm, I mean I'm, no, I'm no fan of the EU. I hope it hasn't come across in the course of this discussion that I think EU foreign policy is, like, top draw. Because I think most people, including me, on a purely personal basis, would agree that the West policy towards Russia and, and the region in general has been, you know, wrong-headed since the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, Western leaders failed to demonstrate sufficient respect towards Russia and the complete lack of understanding of Russia's, you know, decade, not decades, millennia-old fear of encirclement. And, of course, by that, I, I have in mind encirclement um, in form of NATO expansion and, and EU association agreements. Um, but also, as I said, high-handed foreign adventures such as Kosovo and Iraq. You know, Iraq was a major issue for Putin. Um, and again, you know, he, disp he dispatched his top 
foreign policy advisors um, to negotiate with Saddam and the, and the Americans, and the Americans just completely ignored the Russians, just like they did in Kosovo. And Libya, everyone knows that, of course, the Russians abstained Libya in a rare moment of sort of, um, you know, agree not agreement, but something coming close to agreement on Libya because they were under the impression that it was just going to be a no-fly zone, i.e. no planes in the sky. But actually, of course, it turned into lots of bombs falling from planes in the sky. And, you know, several gestures and overtures on the part of Russia towards the West, especially in the early years of the Putin administration, went completely unanswered and ignored. And I think we're, you know, we're kind of paying the price now. And it, I, I think it's quite... I thought it was hilarious, actually, to reread some of the press reports um, from when the Baltic countries, which obviously also were part, of the, uh, were part of the Soviet Union, read some of the press reports of the time when the Baltics joined um, the EU because people were saying, you know, should we be worried about Russia? And basically the consensus was, no, because the Russian military is in such a terrible shape that they could never, never do anything about it. And, of course, now the Russian military is in quite a good shape and can invade countries as it pleases. Um, Tara, we'll bring you in last. Something you said was interesting, which was this, this you know, normative um, foreign policy, sort of rather bloodless, can be very, very um, technical. And one of the criticisms that I heard a very senior British diplomat make of the EU in the Ukraine was it, it viewed it bloodlessly and just a technical... Uh, a technical sort of uh, part of ticking the boxes um, of neighbour policy. But you went a bit further to, to talk about this new uh, sort of rather limitless um, symbolic um, foreign policy. And one of the most alarming things perhaps I find about this current discussion is the way in which Putin has become the symbol of everything that's wrong. He's sort of homophobic. He locked up pussy right. Of course, he'd let him go again. Uh, a little bit later on. He takes his top off and poses with dead animals and, and guns. He's almost like the ideal sort of anti-symbol uh, for, for, for the West, and that seems as if it could actually be quite uh, dangerous. So, Tara, if you could... Yeah, well, I, I would agree. Absolutely. I think I would argue EU foreign policy is, at the moment, and has been since the end of the Cold War, a seriously dangerous and destabilising force. I think there is a real problem, the kind of normative foreign policy, which is absolutely based on a kind of moral grandstanding, is a really problematic uh, foreign policy. I don't know if I want to say more problematic than Cold War foreign policy, you know, that was a, the Cold War was a pretty big potential problem. But there is something very dangerous um, in terms of a foreign policy that explicitly refuses to accept that there are genuine material political differences, which is, to go back to the Ukraine, what I'd say existed in the Ukraine, which was then kind of internationalised and completely blown up as a result of this uh, sort of normative, ethical, grandstanding foreign policy. And I think we've seen it in Yugoslavia. I think we've seen it in Libya. Uh, absolute disaster. We saw the same kind of uh, impetus. And I think now we're seeing it in Ukraine. And I think we'll see it in Syria as well. Okay. Thank you very much. I'd like everyone to give uh, our panel a big hand. Thank you.